you grab your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We've been making our way through Colossians, and I don't know whether you will be sad or relieved to know we're going to take a little break. So this will be the the last uh, week of Colossians for a while, and then sometime later we'll jump back into it so we can finish it. But um, I uh, have had about all of Colossians that I can handle, and so we're going to take a break and just explore some different things uh, in the Word of God, some different topics that are relevant, some different passages of Scripture. So I think it will be really, really good. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So we're just jumping into chapter 3, but I wanted to just do a little bit of review so that we're all on the same page. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is asking the Colossians essentially a question. It's not in there, but the question behind what he's writing is, how are you going to deal with the problem of sin, specifically your problem of sin? Now, we don't need to take that personal because that's for everyone. Um, And the Colossians were attacking it by either ignoring it, they were attacking it by making some rules to keep themselves from sin, and then some of them were handling it through Jesus, and then there were some who were trying to do all three at the same time, which I relate to. Sometimes I downplay my sin, act like it's not a big deal, justify it, call it something other than sin. Uh, Sometimes uh, I I try to to make rules for myself, And, and I think you understand this. Like, have you ever been in one of those seasons of life? If you can imagine a spectrum with me and right here, this is, this is just a spot where you feel totally accepted by God. You feel holy in front of God. You feel alive to God when you pray. It feels like something is happening. When you read the scriptures, something is happening. Um, this is a good spot to be in. And then if it's a spectrum on the other end, way down there, that's where all the wicked people are. Not you guys specifically, bless you. But at the end of the stage... Right? And we want to be in this spot. We want to be in this spot where we're alive to God and he's alive to us and it's real and we feel clean, we feel holy, accepted, we feel alive. And we have to be here. This is what we feel. We have to be here. A couple of weeks ago I was fishing for compliments from my daughter Annabeth. She's five and I was saying, Annabeth, do you, do you love me? She said, yes. And I said, how much do you love me? I said, Annabeth, do you like me? I don't want you to just love me. I want you to like me. She says, yes, daddy, I like you. I love you. And I, I should have just left it there, you know, just should have just let it lie. But I said, Annabeth, why do you love me? Because I have to. <laughs> Takes away some of the heart, doesn't it? But really, that's a good description of why we want to be in this spot where we feel alive to God and accepted by God and clean before God. Because this is where we have to be. And it feels good to be here. Nothing is better than that place. So what we do is we try to fence ourselves in. We think about different seasons of our lives when we were in a place like that. And we ask ourselves, what were we doing 
when we felt alive to God and clean before God and accepted by God. Well, I was reading my Bible a lot. And so we build a fence. You know, I'm going to read my Bible at least 30 minutes every day. You know, probably an hour because I'm so hungry and, and we're so excited about it. And, but just as a bare minimum, I'm going to read the Bible 30 minutes a day. It's a fence. And, and I also, in different seasons, when I would serve God and when I would tell my testimony, when I would serve people and help people, I'd feel that, just that life flowing through me. So I'm just going to make a rule. I'm going to share my testimony. I'm going to tell about the good works that God has done in my life every single day. I'm going to find somebody, even if they don't want to hear it, I'm going to tell them. And if, even if they persecute me, it'll be fine. And so we build another fence right there. So we've got the Bible. We've got serving people and telling our testimonies and praying. We were, pray, we were praying a lot in different seasons. So I'm going to pray at least 30 minutes a day. It'll probably be four hours a day because when I get in that mode, it's just so sweet and fresh. But just in case I'm not feeling it that day, 30 minutes, 30 minutes of prayer. And, you know, I was keeping a lot of garbage out of my life when I was really feeling alive to God and clean before him. And so I'm never going to watch an R-rated movie again. So I'm going to build a fence. And mm, Now I'm fenced in. And even if my heart did stray, Even if my heart didn't mean these things, it wouldn't matter because I fenced myself in with my Bible and my prayer and my testimony and my lifestyle. But listen, I I can tell you from personal experience, those fences, they fall down real easy. And when you knock down the fences that you have set up, it's not like you just take one step away from that spot of acceptance. No, you feel like you go all the way down to the end. Because you knocked over the fences, the very thing that was supposed to keep you in that place. And depending on how devastating the sin was to you, it may feel like you have to spend a couple of hours before you can work your way back up to be accepted by God, clean before God alive to God, or if you did something really bad, one of those things that you didn't just have one fence, you had knocked down a fence before, but you set up another fence and another fence and another fence and another fence after that, and you knocked all those down, would you go way down to the end? And it may take you weeks of perfection, weeks of not doing that thing before you feel like you can be in this place of, I am accepted by God and clean before God and alive to God. And what Paul is saying to the Colossians is it's not any of that. It's not any of that that keeps us alive to God. It's not based on what we do. What keeps us clean before God is not based on what we do. It's based on something else. So he's keeping us away from that kind of legal system or legalism. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to tell us, but here's what it is. It's not those things. Here's what it is. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So he's talking about seeking the things that are above. Now, I confess, sometimes I will read passages of scriptures like this and the key words will be seek and set your mind on. And what am I seeking? What am I setting my mind on? Oh, things above. Okay. But then I don't really think about it much longer. Like what actually is the above that he's talking about? Well, the above that he is talking about is heaven. And so if we're supposed to seek heaven and set our minds on heaven, I thought it would be a little bit helpful for us today to talk 
about heaven. I'm guessing if you're like me, you didn't really have that many conversations about heaven this week. And in fact, for most of us, we haven't talked about heaven or really thought about heaven in quite some time. And yet we're supposed to be seeking these things and setting our minds on these things. Now in the scripture, heaven is used three different Ways. It's used to describe what we would call the sky, where the birds fly, where the clouds are. It's used to describe where the stars are. That's a heaven. And then there's a third heaven where God lives. That's his realm. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he, he says, I knew a guy. Literally, I, I knew a guy. Bible scholars think he's actually talking about himself. Uh, I knew a guy who was caught up in the third heaven, meaning a, a person had a vision of what God's realm looked like and was there and walking around, at least in vision form. And it says about heaven, to help clarify and focus our thinking, verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So this is not just a, a location, it has a meaning, uh, the things above, at where Christ is at the right hand of God. Now the Bible uses the phrase right hand of God a lot. And I just want to show you a couple of things. Exodus chapter 15, verse six, it says that God's right hand is glorious with power and it shatters his enemies. Psalm seventeen seven that we should seek refuge from our adversaries at God's right hand. Psalm eighteen thirty five we are supported by God's right hand. Psalm 20, verse six, he will answer from heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Psalm 60, verse five, ask God to give salvation by his right hand and to answer us. Psalm 118, 15, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Psalm 139.10. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall uphold me. Isaiah 41.10. God will uphold uh, us with his righteous right hand. You get into the gospels. Matthew chapter 20 verse 21. James and John's mom, their two disciples, their mommy comes to Jesus to ask if one of them can sit at his left hand and the other at his right hand. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, Jesus said, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus is at the right hand of God and right now interceding for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 uh, says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, speaking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is, is, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this right hand, it has a meaning. It's not just a location. It represents God's righteousness and salvation. And it says that Jesus is seated there right now. So where Christ is, seated at the right hand, it gives us some sense of what heaven is like. So if you were going to write down three things about heaven, this might be helpful for us to remember as we seek the things that are above. And so these are not scholarly. We're not getting into the minutia of how many gold bricks will be paved in the streets or if you can actually swim in a crystal sea because crystals are solids and that has always seemed weird to me. These are very basic, but I think they're fundamental for us to understanding what it means to seek things are above. Number one, in heaven, Jesus is a big deal. In heaven, Jesus is a big deal. Because the right hand, it's not just location. It it's a place of honor. Genesis chapter 48, Joseph, one of the patriarchs, he brings his two sons to his father, Jacob. And Jacob is blind and it was tradition that the oldest son got the most, uh, the largest piece of the, the blessing. And the blessing was words, yes, but it imparted something spiritual and practical. And so this blessing was a big deal. 
And so Joseph knows that the oldest son, his oldest son, gets most of his father's blessing. And so because Jacob can't see well, Joseph lines up his son, his oldest son in front of Jacob's right hand and his youngest son in front of Jacob's left hand. So when his father reaches out, he reaches his right hand out to the oldest one. So the oldest one will get the biggest piece of the blessing, which was just tradition. But the scripture says that when Jacob actually goes to reach out, he actually crosses them over, his hands over, and he gives the biggest honor to the youngest son and the less honor to the, the, the older son, which was not traditional. But it shows us that this right hand, it is honor. And so when it mentions Jesus being at the right hand, Again, that's not just his position. That's not just his GPS coordinates of where he is. It's a seat of honor. And everything else about heaven, what the streets are made of, what the rivers are made of, the relatives we're going to see, all of that is secondary to Jesus being honored in heaven. I don't know if you've seen this movie that's out right now. It's called uh, Heaven is for Real. Anybody who's seen it right now? Based on our attendance today, it's not doing well at the box office. Not very many people have seen it. But uh, it's based on a book. And um, I read that book about a year ago. And so, so I got a lot of questions since the Noah movie came out and now this heaven movie has come out and there's some other movies about faith and people come in and say like, should we see that? Is it weird? You know, it's not, it's got some of the Bible, but not all the Bible. And, and what I always tell people, I'm just a pretty uh, simple guy, is we don't get our theology. We don't get what we believe about God and believe about our faith from any media outlet, whether it's a book or a movie or a television show. We get what we believe about God from the scripture. You don't even... You shouldn't even get a prim- primarily what you believe about God from me. And I hope I'm teaching it accurately, but you don't need me or any other pastor, any other person to mediate for you. You can decide what you believe all on your own through the word of God. And so what I tell people is if you're not getting your theology from the movie, it, it's nice to go. And it helps us imagine the things that are not spelled out for us clearly in the scripture. And so I read this book about a year, year ago called Heaven is for Real. If, if you don't know what it's about, it's about a little boy who uh, almost died or did die in the hospital. And when he uh, was there, uh, kind of away, he was taken up to heaven, similar to what Paul described about himself. And he got these visions and he ended up being fine. They revived him. And later on, people found out through his little messages and little comments that, whoa, something special happened to him. And it's a really, it's either the biggest hoax in the world or very convincing, this book. And it's very moving. And I often recommend it to people who have lost a loved one, just to help you imagine what it, would, what it will be like for those who have lost. And so I'm reading this book and I go to a coffee shop. And by coffee shop, I mean McDonald's. And uh, <laughs> because they have iced teas for a dollar and free Wi-Fi, and that's all you need. And I'm a good steward. And so I'm there like a normal person at McDonald's reading a book. And I'm reading this book and I get to this place in the book where, where it starts telling the story. Now, the little boy's dad is a pastor and the pastor, like me, has to go and visit some people in the hospital. And somebody in his church, uh, an older man, is, is breathing his last breaths there in the hospital. And his family's all gathered in the hospital room. So the dad goes up to be with the family and he has to take his son. Can't find a babysitter or something like that. And I know what that's like because I've had to bring Jackson along a few times to the hospital with me. And every time we get into the hospital, I'm like, listen to me. This is a big deal. I got a whole speech. This is not one of those be seen but not heard. This is like don't be seen. This is like go and hide. This is like hide in the corner behind all the equipment. Like do not mess this up. And if you 
are good. I will buy you whatever you want kind of deal. And so this pastor brings his son up to the hospital room. And when he gets into the room, the older man loves Jesus, been faithful all his life, is, is there. And he's getting ready to breathe his last breath. The family is mourning. The family's all congregated in the corner room. They're mourning. They're crying. So the dad, naturally, the pastor goes over. He starts ministering to the family, speaking to them. Well, the little boy, the, the book says, walks over to the hospital bed. And he's had this, you know, amazing experience. He leans up over the bed and he whispers to this man who's getting ready to breathe his last breath. Don't be afraid. Jesus is the first person you see. I'm telling you what, I, I'm not lying. I started weeping. Like loud weeping at the McDonald's. You know. It, it was me and like some three-year-olds who were frustrated with the playground. Like we were the ones crying <laughs> in the McDonald's. And I mean, like tears, like the whole nine yards, like. <gasps> and I'm, people are like looking, like real looking, not like preacher. You know, maybe they're like really looking. And I'm like, sorry, heaven, Jesus, dollar iced teas, good stewardship. You know, I don't know why I'm reading this book in here, but I am. And, and you know, Again, we don't get our theology from any person's vision. So whether or not Jesus is the first face you see or what happens in the immediate aftermath, I have no idea. But what I do know is that he will be the only face that you want to see. He will be the only face that when you look at that and you look at everybody else's face, your face is going back to his face. Because Jesus is a big deal in heaven. Your grandma, awesome. My grandma there right now, amazing. Best lady on planet earth. I will not be making a beeline to her. Bless her. It's Jesus. And whatever you thought about him when you came in the room today, you could have been a follower. You could have loved him every day of your life. However amazing and grand and glorious you thought he was when you came here. It's that times eternity. He is beyond our wildest imagination and expectation. I think Paul understood this because in Philippians chapter one, he's having this argument with himself because he's being persecuted all the time. He's almost lost his life. He's been stoned before. And he's like, honestly, I, I don't know what I would rather happen. I don't know if I would rather die at the hands of these persecutors or stick around and fulfill my ministry. Because if I stick around and I fulfill my ministry, that's good for you. And I like that. But man, to depart and be with Christ is far better. And then he says these amazing words in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says that not because dying is good. It's not. And if you've brushed up against death recently, you know it's not. But he says dying is gain because whatever loss death is, Jesus' gain swallow all, swallows all that up. I want you to turn really quickly to Revelation chapter 21. John, the disciple, he gets a vision of heaven. He's caught up to heaven. 
And in chapter 21, he sees the city of Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And this is what it's like in Jerusalem. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it, it light. So in the new Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, there's no need for the sun. There's no need for any other light source because God's glory radiates the whole thing. So in heaven right now, there's no sun. There's no rising sun. There's no setting sun. It's just the glory of God. But it says, and its lamp is the lamb. Now, when I read that and, and, and I'm thinking of, of the lamp in my house, it doesn't make sense. But you think of what a lamp would have been like in the first century when John is writing what he's seen in this vision. They didn't have electricity, obviously. They had oil lamps. And you can imagine trying to light a room with just a candle, you know, a, a, which would work. But then any kind of breeze would blow it out. If you have to move it from one place to another, you have to hold it. It's just not very accessible. So what a lamp did is a lamp with the oil, it kept it burning. It also had a glass over it to keep that flame protective. And so the, the lamp made the light accessible to everyone. And Jesus makes the glory of God accessible to us. He's the lamb. Now I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes about the same idea, just using different words. Verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right there, the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God and the lamp accessible to us. The glory of God. How do we wrap our minds around something like that? Well, it's in the face of Jesus Christ. But then we have a responsibility. As the glory of God made available to us, we get to experience it in our salvation. We get to experience it in prayer. We get to experience the glory of God in corporate worship. But we have a responsibility. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's what it's saying. When people see the glory of God in your lives, when they come to you and they're like, I don't get your life. You're, you're different. You respond differently at work. You have a different attitude than everyone else around here. What's the deal with you? When they see the glory of God on your life, what are you going to do? Are you going to tell them about your fence? Well, that's because I read my Bible 30 minutes. It's because I haven't seen an R-rated movie since before there were even R-rated movies. So what's different about me? When people come to you and they Say, man, you, you're an amazing parent. You love your children and they love you and they're respectful and your home is well-ordered and it seems like you're teaching them things. That they, what is going on with you? You're gonna tell them about one of your fences? My children do not let their heads hit the pillow unless they've memorized the portion of Colossians. <laughs> I quiz them on it every night. It's what makes them, are you gonna tell them about your fence? no. You're going to tell them so that the surpassing power, they know that the surpassing power belongs to God. You don't tell them about the fence. You tell them about the glory inside of you. You don't tell them about the fence. You don't tell them that. You've gone to church every Sunday since you were born. 
You tell them about Jesus who lives inside of you. And we return that glory to him. The second thing I want you to know about heaven is in heaven there is unending joy. In heaven there is unending joy. Psalm chapter 16 verse 11 It says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. You know, for some reason, most of us are convinced. In fact, most people are convinced that if you want happiness in this life, you have to get as far away from God as possible. That's what Jonah was thinking. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. He's like, no, I want to be happy. I want to do my thing. I'm going the opposite direction. The prodigal son, the parable that Jesus tells the son, he he doesn't want to have experience on his father's farm anymore. He wants to be happy. He wants to do his own thing. So he goes away to where? A far country. A lot of us, for some reason, have this idea ingrained in us that if you want to be happy, you have to get as far away from God as possible. But the opposite is true. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Just ask yourself right now, are you happy? Not right now in this minute, but like just in general, this season. I assume that you are happy right now. In this season, are you happy? Some of us would be like, you know, no, I'm not happy. I'm stressed out to the max. I'm like 90 percent anxiety and anytime that 10 percent starts building up in me I can feel it and and I feel like if I get to 100 percent anxiety I'm going to lose my mind and I'm going to leave the edge of rationality are you happy because if for whatever reason today you're like no I'm not happy seek The presence of God. Where else can you get this promise? Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You're like, well, I get it. I hear it. I hear it. But that cannot be true for me. You don't know what's happened to me. If you knew my story, then you know that this would not work. I get it. I don't know your story. And maybe your story is awful. But I know David's story. And if you glance back up to verse 1, you can see that David, King David, he's the one who wrote this psalm. He's the one who said that in God's presence there was fullness of joy. He was resented by his brothers. He was misunderstood by his bosses. He experienced the death of a child. His daughter was assaulted. He made some serious, serious sinful mistakes. He temporarily lost his kingdom to his own son. And he said that at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In heaven, it's a place of unending joy. Most of us are under the assumption that heaven will be the world's longest church service. I mean, you start getting restless after about an hour and 15 minutes of being here. I I pick up on that, by the way. Uh, So the thought for us of like doing this, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. You need to be having a really, 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 really good day to be like, went to church this morning. I want to go back tonight. 
So the thought of heaven is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But it will be the happiest and the most content and the most satisfied you've ever been. You will know one day what unending joy feels like. And the third thing I want you to know about heaven is in heaven, your sacrifice is honored. In heaven, your sacrifice is honored. Acts chapter 7. tells the story of Stephen. In all of the New Testament, whenever it talks about Jesus being at the right hand, if it, if it ever says what he's doing there, he's always seated. We read some of those scriptures earlier. He said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. Ephesians chapter one, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places over and over again in the New Testament talks about Christ being seated at the right hand. Stephen, Acts chapter seven, is an amazing man. When he talks about Jesus, nobody can refute him, but that doesn't mean that people are not angry. It says in verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, what? Standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And when they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we know as Paul, who later writes this letter to the Colossians that we've been in today. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's the same thing that Jesus had said when he was on the cross. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So everywhere in the New Testament that Christ is is at the right hand, it says over and over again that he's seated, except for right here where he is standing. Why on earth... Is he seated everywhere else except for in this moment? Well, what do you do when you are in a room and a person of honor comes in? You stand up. When your boss comes into the room, you stand up. When your mother maybe comes into the room, if you're a good young man, you you stand up. When your wife comes to the table, you stand up. When people of honor come in, we stand up. And I don't know this for sure. Let's just use our imagination. But I think Jesus is sitting any every other time, except for right here, because he is honoring the sacrifice that Stephen is making. And I know that from scriptures like James chapter one, verse 12, when it says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You've read scriptures like this. You've heard this before. There's a crown waiting on us. But listen, I'm being honest. That's never really motivated me. So I'm thinking, uh, crown? So you want me to be steadfast and endure all this suffering and you're gonna give me a hat? 
really doesn't do anything for me. And, and I doubt it does that much for you. I mean, who, who's going to say like, yeah, I'm going to endure this. I'm going to keep being faithful because I get to wear something on my head. But it's not the crown that's the reward. It's not the crown that's the prize. It's the honor that the crown represents. Because anybody wearing a crown is the person that's honored. When the king is wearing a crown, they're honored. When the queen is wearing the crown, when the princess is wearing the crown, when the royalty is wearing the crown, it's a place of honor. And I think what the scripture teaches is that we want to remain faithful, keep sacrificing, keep enduring. Because even though your sacrifice is not being honored on earth, it is being honored in heaven. Just... You just haven't gotten to see it yet. What's your sacrifice? You may be single and, and you look around and you want to be married and it seems like everybody your age is married and they're on their way to kids and you're just like, it's not happening for me and you're living in this cult, this hookup culture and you're trying to resist that because you are a follower of Jesus and honestly, your singleness is a sacrifice. I want you to know It's not being overlooked. It is noticed and it is being honored. Maybe you're in a marriage that you want desperately to exit, but you're in it. You're in it, even though the person you're in it with probably doesn't deserve it. It's a sacrifice. It is noticed and it is being honored. You just haven't seen it yet. You may be a single parent and you're looking out for your kids and you're looking to provide and nobody's looking out for you. And it's a sacrifice. It is noticed and it is being honored. You just haven't seen it yet. Here's why it matters because many of us stopped trusting God a long time ago because we didn't know and just assumed that our sacrifices and our pain and our disappointment went unnoticed. And if that's you today, if you are just believing God for the big stuff, like afterlife stuff and eternal life stuff, but you have given up trusting him for the everyday stuff, I came to tell you that your sacrifice was written down. He noticed and it has been honored. You just haven't received that honor yet. So don't give up. Remain steadfast under trial. Heaven, in heaven, Jesus is a big deal. In heaven, there is unending joy. And in heaven, your sacrifice is honored. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Seek, set your mind. Bible scholars tell us that there's words for affection underneath it. Out of love, set your mind on things that are above. Out of love, set your hearts on things that are above. You know, what, what do you do when you have affection for something, when you love something, you talk about it? Right, just nonstop. Some of you are in love with your health plan. You talk about it 24-7. People are probably getting worn out about it, by the way. 
bless you. Uh, you're, you're in love with your gym, you talk about it, right? You're in love with a movie or a book, you talk about it. You're in love with a person, you talk about it. I remember the first three months that Amanda and I were together, we were dating long distance. It was just like non, nonstop, 24-7. Amanda's so awesome, she's so pretty, she's the most wonderful person in the world. In fact, I had one of my pastors call me in to his office and be like, hey, tell me about, you know, she's down in Texas. I know that you're just crazy one day, you skip class, you go down and visit her. I just wanna make sure like you're not insane now, what's going on? And I'm like, I'm taking it as a compliment that you're concerned for me right now. That's how in love I am with this girl, right? Because you just talk about things that you are in love with, that you love, that you care about. And so here's the big takeaway today. No big revolutionary moment. Because I have a hard time picturing myself seeking heaven this week or even setting my mind on heaven because before I even finish the sermon in the next 30 seconds, I'm going to have a million different thoughts run through my mind. But I think I can focus on talking about heaven this week. What if we just made it our goal as our way of seeking the things that are above and setting our minds on things above that every day this week, we're going to bring up some random conversation about heaven. Talk about it with your kids. Talk about it with your spouse. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with the students at school. You're like, well, I don't really have anybody in my life. Talk about it with strangers. One time I was in an ice cream shop getting some ice cream, low fat, of course. The kid, young man, teenager, handed me my cone. I'm like, man, I love ice cream. I said, do you think there'll be ice cream in heaven? He goes, I don't know. I said, you think you'll be there to find out? He's like, I don't know. And then we got to talk about heaven and ice cream. You could talk about heaven. And I promise that you this, you start talking about it, your affection will follow. And where your affection follows, your mind will follow. See the things that are above. No fences, just seeking. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the main attraction of heaven. Thank you that there is so much joy in you at the right hand of the Father that we'll never get bored. So recapture our imagination about what is to come for us and what is real to us and where our citizenship lies. So deliver us to heavenly things and rescue us from our attention being solely on earthly things. We want to seek set our minds on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up?